Well, good morning. So good to see each of you here this morning. My name is Matt Rice. I'm the teaching pastor here at Northwest. We're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 1. I want to ask you a question. When your name is mentioned, what do people think or say about you? And what are you known for? What are you known for and what do people say about you? Well, I want to give you just a start. When I was in middle school, I wanted more than anything in the world to be in the local play. Now, I went to Timothy Edwards Middle School in South Windsor, Connecticut, and just for you history buffs, there's a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and Timothy Edwards is the father of Jonathan Edwards. That's a little history for you right there. Jonathan Edwards being one of the great reformers, one of the great pastors in the Northeast that God used to uh, spread the gospel. So I went to Timothy Edwards Middle School in South Windsor, Connecticut, and our play in the seventh grade, I was the new kid, had moved from New York to Connecticut, and I wanted to be in this place so bad. Growing up, our family watched, I would say, too much television. Different Strokes, The Bionic Man, I mean all kinds of silver spoons, I mean all kinds of shows that you, if you were over 40, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I need to mention Knight Rider kit, and so you guys know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you can Google that. And so lots of, lots of television. And man, I just wanted to be in a play. My school was doing Fiddler on the Roof, and I decided I'm, I'm going to go try out for this play. Now, when I got there for my audition, I did not understand and I did not know that Fiddler on the Roof is a musical. And as I showed up for my audition, I realized very quickly that I was going to have to sing. And all I had to do was the do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. And that is exactly what I tried to do. And they said, hey, thanks for coming in. We'll be in touch. Pretty much is what they said. Well, the cast was then decided upon, and you was nailed up to the bulletin board. They had the dot matrix printout, and it was placed on this bulletin board, and you could go find your name. And I went, ran over there. A couple of days later, I found Matt Rice, and I followed the dots along, and it said loser. No, no, no. Let's just hear me out right now. It didn't say loser, but it, 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 it said loser, but it, but it was spelled usher, okay? Usher. <laughs> Matt Rice and Usher, so basically what they said to us, thanks for coming in, but if there's any possible way you can be as far away from the stage, that would be great. Just show people where to sit down. As a matter of fact, there's no training for this. Just show up the day of the play and just hand out a bulletin and let people sit down. That is my acting experience. And then it got even better than that in varsity basketball because my freshman year, we had a freshman year team at my high school, and my freshman year, I started. I started every game, and then my junior year, sophomore year, I made the JV team, and sometimes I played, and sometimes I didn't, and then I got to my junior year, and I got cut, and I was like, what's the deal? So, I went and joined the local church team, because Jesus says you cannot be cut from a church team. Here's what I'm saying right now. If you were to sit there and hear of my acting ability, and in my basketball game, you certainly would not be extremely inspired. You wouldn't be anywhere challenged. But what we're talking about here and what you rest in and what I rest in is we rest in hearing about people who are living out the beautiful message of the gospel and how inspirational it is, how encouraging it is. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians chapter one. Paul has never met these people before. 
He's gotten word about who they are. He heard who they were. And he writes them a letter to tell them and to encourage them that I have heard great things about you and I want to affirm you. I want to challenge you. And I want you to know that this is what you are known for. And so what I want us to think about this morning is I want us to think about what are we known for? What are we known for as individuals and what are we known for as a church? Because as Paul writes this letter, as we talked about last week, he's the author of the book of Colossians, and he's writing this letter because he wants them to understand and wrap their minds around the message of the supremacy of Christ for all things. Plain and simple, that Jesus is enough. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And there was a Colossian heresy that was coming that there was outside the church. And the church had been planted by Epaphras. And there was these beliefs that were outside and he was nervous that they were going to come inside. And they would distort and compromise the beautiful message of the gospel. This is what he is trying to teach. I will tell you this, that as we study this, we're in the second week of a 10-week message series. That my prayer, plain and simple, is that God would use this series to shape your heart and your mind around the supremacy of Christ. And even, just even, that he might reveal to those that are sitting in this room that are not believers in Jesus, that you would become believers in Jesus. I meet with two guys on Wednesday morning and both of them declared to me this week that hey, I went to church, I was on committees, I stood up in front and even taught people. I knew all of the language there was around who he is. And one guy said, I was sitting on my steps as a 30-some-year-old man and gave my life to Christ after being in church for so long. I'm praying that he would use this this series to embolden our faith, and I'm asking him that he would use this series, listen, that we would feast and love God's word, that we would have an insatiable appetite to feast and love the reading and and the learning about him through his great letters to us and his books to us. And that this would ignite in us just a fire to learn about God and the supremacy of Christ for all things. And that he would simply use the book of Colossians to get us to that place. As we've talked about several times, this is what Paul is writing to. He's, he's writing because he wants to encourage them and remind them of who they are and what they have. And not go away or add to something of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when we add to the gospel, we subtract from the gospel. When we add to it, we subtract from it. So it is beautiful. And Paul is coming to them. And in verses 3 through 8, which is where we will be for the next couple of minutes, as he just sort of walks them through this. So let's get, begin in verse 3. We'll read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, and talk about it. So here's what he says in verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. The first thing that we note here in verse 3 is that Paul's thanksgiving is simply directed to God. It is true that he has heard about who they are, but Paul begins his talk to them by saying, I thank God for you because I know all of the things and I've heard all the things that you are doing, but I want to make sure you understand that I know that it is the God in you that is accomplishing them. And certainly we can be encouraged and greatly encouraged 
by people in our lives when, we, when they do things. And we can sit there and say, hey, that was so encouraging. I appreciate the way you're doing that. Paul is recognizing that God is sufficient for all things and his posture is to begin with him. That everything that has been welled up, everything that you are doing, everything that you have done is because of him. That's, that's his posture. Ultimately, it is God who is responsible for the reputation that you have in your, in, in, in uh, Epaphras giving it to him. Now, it is it's very important for us to sit there and say, oh, I thank God for all of these things that I've seen you to do. Well, then you can also logically, but not theologically, go to the point and say, well, if God is responsible for all of these good things, then certainly he must be responsible for all of those bad things. And that might be logical, but that's not theological. We recognize in the text very clearly that bad things happen and we suffer really mainly three or a combination of all three. We know that in Galatians 6 verse 7 it states this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We understand that bad things or suffering that come to us are certainly allowed by God, but they are a consequence of our own sin, and we must be warned. Proverbs 28 13 says, He who uncovers his sin, confession, God will cover by the blood of Jesus. And that right there is a recognition and a generous God. You've heard me say that before. The second way that we suffer sometimes is the sin of other people. Their sin affects us. If you have a family, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's six, there's seven people in my family and two dogs. We understand there's a lot of people, there's a lot of sinners. My sin affects other people's lives. Another way that we suffer is that we've been talking about this for a long time, is that we live simply in a fallen world. We've been talking about living in the midst of two gardens. We have the Garden of Eden where everything was right and went wrong. And then we have Revelation chapter 21 where everything's going to be made new. There will be no more division, there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more dying, no more death. And right now, we sit right now that God has sovereignly positioned and placed us in the middle of those gardens and suffering takes place. I want us to make sure that we make no mistake that when we look at this first text, when it says, we always thank God, when Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. He is basically saying that all you are doing and all that you have done is because of God and his kindness towards you. Let's not forget that. He also, in this first text, makes a very important declaration, especially in the context of the time. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The English, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is difficult. But when we really unpack that in the original language, what it's basically saying is, I want you to know that Jesus is God. And that was a belief that was outside in the city of Colossae. They were denying the deity of Jesus. And right here in his thankful letter, he is basically affirming the deity of Jesus. He is correcting a doctrinal heresy that's outside. And in doing that, he reminds them that Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to know God, you know Jesus. He said it himself. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so there is a lot of things that's really unpacked right there in that first verse. And I think it's really important for us to see and recognize that yes, the reality of our thanksgiving 
and our encouragement by each other is really, really important. And you have, you have spurred me on and maybe we have spurred each other on. But at the end of the day, we recognize that the way that you have spurred me on is ultimately, it is God's gift to us for, of each other. Let's continue on. Verse four says this. Why am I thankful for you? Why am I thanking God for you? Here's the first reason he's thankful for them. It says this in verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So since we heard of this right now, I mean, it talks to him. The very first thing that we see in this text is that he is thankful and he's thankful for their faith in the Savior. They are known for their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. God raised Jesus from the dead and he offers believers, Jew and Gentile, the same exact promised life. He is not treating faith as sort of a property to be possessed. What he is doing is he's saying it is a vibrant force that expresses itself in how we live. And that's what he does. I think it's important to understand that Epaphras comes to Paul and he's telling them all this stuff. And he doesn't just go 1,300 miles to Rome because that's how long he walked. He went to this Roman imprisonment where Paul was. It's 1,300 miles. He sits before him and he doesn't just go to him and complain about just the heresies that are outside that could be distorting the gospel. What he does is he goes to them and he tells them, you have got to see and hear about the people God has placed me over and in charge of. He says, they have a faith in our Savior, Paul. That is who they are. And Paul writes them back and goes, man, that is so, so encouraging. The word faith is a belief and trust. It goes far beyond an intellectual assent, which is incredibly, incredibly important. Next thing he says is, he comes down to say, what else are you thankful for? He's thankful for this. Let's go on to the, the, the next part of the verse. And the love that you have for all saints. Here's the second reason that Paul was grateful for them was because of their unconditional love for the saints. When he looks at it right now, he's like, wow, you have this great faith in Christ for salvation. That is incredible. But you know what it does? It leads you to action. And you have this, this love for people that is, that is unconditional, that is agape. It's a term we use all the time. We were talking about this. It's not based on feelings or attraction. It is based on self-sacrifice, esteeming others better than ourselves. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, it's unconditional. In Romans 5, 8, for Christ demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. This type of love, this type of love changes the world. And this is what he's talking about right now. And this is what he's hearing about. It's like I hear and I see, I've heard about your faith in Christ for salvation. But I have also heard about this unconditional love for all saints. I think it's important that this great faith that we have leads us to action. A love of people. The Bible teaches us they will know us by our love for one another. That's what First John says, right? I remember when I finished college in 1994, I was given a job to work for Gardner-Webb University. 
And I was responsible for selling Gardner-Webb. I was a recruiter for Gardner-Webb. And so what I was supposed to do was to go to all of these college fairs and basically try to get people to come to Gardner-Webb. That was the role that I had. That was my mission, so to speak. So I'd go to high schools, go to county college fairs, um, and, and just try to tell people about Gardner-Webb and see if they would come. And they said, in order for you to do that, you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. So we're sending you for training in Brevard, North Carolina, to training. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went for training with a bunch of people, same age as myself. And we went to this training in Brevard, North Carolina. And we had to do a high ropes course. I'm scared to death of heights. So they were like, we want you to overcome your fear. And so you do the high ropes course. And you get to the last part right now. You get to the last part. And the last part is called the faith jump. And basically they're saying, if you have faith, you're going to jump. Here's the deal. You're on the side of a mountain, there's a deck. There's a pine tree that's about 21 feet up in the air that has these spikes every like this, like steps. Okay? You're on a belay and you go all the way up to the top. And I did this and I went all the way up to the top. I've got this belay thing on. I'm harnessed here and harnessed here. And there's a one foot by one foot platform. And there's a trapeze bar about seven and a half feet in front of me. And we're on the side of a mountain, so 21 feet looks like a million, okay? And I am sitting on this platform, one foot by one foot. I'm belayed, and I am like, okay. Down there, there's all these recent college graduates from all the colleges all over North Carolina that are doing the same thing that I'm doing. And they're down there, and they are just chanting, Matt, Matt. And then they start stomping on the deck. And I am like, oh, boy. And so I'm there. And I am focused. I see the trapeze bar. And I'm like. And I won't move. I literally cannot move. My arms are going. And they're getting louder. And they're getting louder. And they're getting louder. And I'm like. I guess I don't have faith. <laughs> I am not like moving. And then finally I just said okay. I mean it was, it was okay. It was literally like 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> and usually you just get up there and jump and go. I was literally petrified. And so finally, I got up enough guts, and I just, I jumped, I jumped so far, okay? <laughs> Take that, basketball. Uh, I, I, I jumped so far that the bar hit me here, and it rolled up, and I caught it, and my legs swung like this, and they're chanting, and then I get belayed down, they're like, you had faith because you jumped. Your faith has action. I was like, that's a good sermon illustration, <laughs> Here it is, here it is, Here's, here we are right now. It's, it's taking place. He's looking at us like this. You have been changed by the God of the universe. Your life has been changed. You have faith in who he is. You believe him, you trust him, you follow him. He says, and then you have this love for other people. Let us not separate this faith that we have and a lack of love that the Bible commands us to love with and by. Let us not separate those two. Let us be known for each of them. We cannot divorce them. And, and Paul is sitting there and he's writing. He's going, man, I'm hearing of this great faith and I'm hearing of this great love and I am just, just overwhelmed in God because of your faith in him and your love for others. Now, here's what, uh, here's what we find out in the next verse. In the next verse, it says in verse five. Five says this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I know that's a short part right there, but, it, but look, he says, you've got this faith and you've got this, this love. He says, why do you have this? And he says, well, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul comes and says, 
that he gives them a reason. I know that you have this faith and I know that you have this love because you believe the promise that Jesus is gonna come back and make all things new. You believe that Jesus is a man of his word, that he's going to come back, that he has gone to prepare a place for us. He prepared a place for us by going to the cross. And he said, I'm going to come back again that where I am, you may be also. And he's looking at these Colossian believers and he's sitting there saying, I am so encouraged and I'm so grateful that you believe that promise that he is coming back and that you have hope in that promise. And because you have hope in that promise, you have faith in Jesus and you have a love for him, a love for the saints. This is an unbelievable thing that we see here uh, from, from from Paul, this hope is, is bigger than just a wishful thinking. It is an expectation with confidence, confident assurance that it was going to take place. I have a quote I want to read to you about a pastor who, did an, who wrote a blog about, um, it was a blog or a message, I don't remember which one it was, but he wrote about placing our hope and where our hope is. Where do we place our hope? And this is what he said. He said, now, with that said, here's my question. When have, where have you, play, have you put your hope? Since that's coming for you, where have you put your hope? The bulk of humanity puts their hope in this, I'm a good guy. My question continues to be, compared to what? Because if you're, think, if you're a thinker on any level, you've got to admit that's somewhat of a silly game. So God is going to give you whatever the afterlife holds in regards to goodness because you're not the loser your neighbor is. That's where you're push, pushing all your chips. You're pushing all your chips into, I love my wife better than the neighbor does. I take care of my kids better than the neighbor does. The scary part of the Bible is not that God judges our wickedness. It's that he sees our righteousness as filthy rags. Compared to the holiness of God, it's your goodness that falls short. It's not your wickedness that condemns you. It is your goodness. See why you need the cross so badly? See why Jesus better had paid the bill? Because all your righteous acts are filthy before him. This is the weight of it. So my question is, where is your hope? Where are you putting it? Is it, is it in living as well as you can with the one life that you've been given? That is a monumental roll of the dice if there is any such thing as the afterlife. You are much bigger risk taker than I am and I, pretty, I am pretty risky when it comes to gambles. So where's your hope and where are you putting it? And Paul is so encouraged that their hope is in King Jesus. And that's where our hope should be in well. It's the hope that he's gonna come back, he's gonna restore, he's gonna make all things new. He's gonna make all things new. He continues, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Let's stop right there. We always want to define the gospel when it uses the gospel. So he comes to them and he says, he uses the word gospel. You've heard this before. You've heard the word of truth. You've heard the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. The gospel simply means that it is good news, that we are, we are sinners and there is nothing we can do about it and that's the bad news. And the good news is that we can be saved from our sins by God's beautiful and wonderful grace. And he's reminding them that that is what they have. Because he does not want them to forget that no matter what comes in to the church. So Jesus saves and it's that message that causes us to have a faith, 
a love and a hope in heaven. And then he comes to the effects of the gospel. What does the gospel do? Please don't miss this. Verse 6. The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. I have not gotten over that all week long. It has messed with me, wrecked me in such a good way. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel changes things wherever it goes. And I need you to know Colossian churches. I need you to know city of Colossae. I need you to know that yes, it is changing you, but it's doing the same thing in other places. And I want that to be a motivation and I want that to be an encouragement to you. As we take a look at East Asia and over in China, we know that the gospel right now in this moment is exploding. Yes, they might have to do it in underground situations. Maybe they have to dress up and go and and meet in the the darkness of the night. But if you do some research, you understand that it is moving, it is growing, it is increasing, and it is bearing fruit all over the world because you cannot stop it. And that's what Paul is wrapping it up here. He's saying the gospel changes people wherever it goes. It is taking root and it is bearing fruit. How do we know that someone is a follower of Christ? We know based in the fruit of their life and it is happening all over the place. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about being in the gospel. He's talking about that beautiful message of the gospel. But here is the place that we must, we must realize and be very, very careful with. Because the gospel changes and the gospel is something that we were reminded of when we as followers of Jesus are disciplined enough to put ourselves in places where the gospel is lived out, where the gospel is taught, and where we are reminded of it based on friendships and things we participate in. But here is the danger right now in the Netflix culture. The danger in the Netflix culture is YouTube and Netflix and videos and all of those kinds of things and all the other distractions like it is, we fill ourselves with this and listen, Every single TV show that is out there now has an agenda to redefine the family for what it is. And every single show, maybe that's a little general statement, maybe that's a little too bold, but but many of the TV shows are redefining what the family is. And so it's all over here. And if we have all this over here and Netflix and YouTube and all of that, and then we come over here and we have just a little bit of gospel, how in the world are we going to be able to understand the truth if we're not sitting in the truth? How? How are we going to be able to defend? How are we going to be able to stand up? And how are we going to be able to do that in love? So if this is the truth that we sit in and feed ourselves with, and then this is what we know to be the truth, but we just say it's true, but we're not in it and not sitting in it and not marinating in it and not lingering in it, then this is very dangerous to our souls, our being, and our understanding to be fully devoted followers of Christ, to be disciples who make disciples. And I really feel like we need a warning in that way. So he is sitting there telling them, you have been sitting in this truth, and I want you to remember that truth, and I want you to be reminded of that truth. And I want to encourage us today to let us sit and let us marinate in the beautiful, beautiful gospel. And let that motivate us, encourage us, sharpen us, challenge us, rebuke us, so that we might have faith 
to make such a difference in our world today and stand up for what is true. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow brother and servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so this is so beautiful right now. He comes and he affirms Epaphras. And so here's what took place. Epaphras is in a city called Ephesus. He hears this man Paul preach the gospel and it changes him. He then woes walks 12 miles, not 1,300 miles. It's a shorter distance this time. He walks 12 miles to the city of Colossae. He sits there, he goes in there, and he starts preaching the gospel. He starts heralding the message of, of faith alone in Christ alone. And the church is begun in that area. And that's what happens. That's how the church got started in Colossae. And so Epaphras goes from this major metropolitan area to this really small city, and the church is exploded and it is just going. But here is the key right now. Who did Epaphras learn the gospel from? He learned it from Paul. And so Paul, go back to verse 3, the very beginning of the whole text that we learned this morning. And so here is the message that Paul is trying to say. I thank God when I pray for you. Because listen to me, the gospel has changed me. I am changed by the gospel. You, Colossians, you are changed by the gospel. Others have been changed by the gospel. Epaphras has been changed by the gospel. And he says, guess what, Northwest? You too can be changed by the gospel. Because Christ is supreme and he is enough. And he begins that letter by thanking them, helping them to recognize, I am thankful to God for all things that he has done. He has given you this faith. He has given you this hope. He has given you this burden to love and love unconditionally. He is providing you settings to be in the gospel, provided someone to teach you about the gospel. But at the end of the day, it is all because of God. So let us, Northwest, be known for these four things. Going back to the beginning, what do you want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? These four things right now. Number one, faith in Jesus alone. Number two, a love for each other. Number three, hope of salvation. And number four, the power of the beautiful gospel. Let us be known for that. And when it's all said and done, let us not come with an arrogant posture, but let us come and say, God, thank you for the work that you were doing in me and in others. Because I recognize all of this is because of you. All of it is because of you. And all of it is for you. I love you. Let's take up our cross, follow him. Let's stay out of his seat. Let's be the church in here and let's go be the church out there for the glory of God and for the fame of his name. I love you. Let's pray. God, I love you and I thank you for the beauty, the beauty of the gospel. And I thank you for just Paul and how encouraging he was to stand up for truth. Lord, may we at this moment set aside, set ourselves up in places where we can learn about you, that we can be reminded of you, and let us not get over the gospel. There are so many distractions, Lord. So many distractions. 
an extremely different definition of many things that the Bible teaches about. So help us to camp out, to linger, to marinate in the scriptures so that we might be known as a group of people that gives credit to you for all things, that has faith in you for salvation, that has a love for all people, a hope for what is to come, and recognizes the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.